Well, good day, everyone, and welcome back to The Extras. My name is Sam. And I am Jack. And today we are, have the great blessing of being joined by the venerable, can I call you venerable, Cara Hartley? Oh, is that, is that correct? Oh, may, may I? No. No, okay, no. no. What, is, what is your title exactly, Cara? Welcome. Um, well, thank you. Yes, the venerable Cara Hartley, Archdeacon for Women's Ministry, because that's a catchy business card that title. That is catchy, yeah. Look, we can work with that. We have a graphic design little unit here. We'll, we'll, we'll whip you something up. That'll be, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get it on a business card for you. Thank you so much for joining us. You, you've been with us uh, on Sunday on our YouTube clip, and we're really grateful for all of your wisdom, and you've given us some more of your time now to kind of tackle some of these questions that have come in um, over the weekend on um, yeah, via text, and, uh, yeah, really grateful for your time. Um, we got we got about ten questions. We're going to try and motor through them uh, together today, and uh, let, let's see how we go. It'd be great to have your Bible open if you've uh, got it in uh, Genesis thirty four was our text. But before we dive into the questions, very quickly from you, Jack, just give us a bit of a highlights package. What what part of God's Word were we in on the weekend? And uh, for those who might have missed it, yeah, I mean it's probably more of a lowlights package, really, when you Good think point. about what happened in Genesis thirty four. We have been wrestling with this tough passage about sin, about violence. In Genesis 34, Jacob's daughter Dinah is raped. We see the awful fallout of that. We see the the chaos that is wreaked by some of Jacob's sons as they murder the whole city that perpetrated that against Dinah. We're thinking about just the, the mess of sin and how awful it can be in this world and about the hope of far out we want someone to come and deal with this and how great is it that Jesus has come to bring justice once and for all mm. through the cross. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, a, a, a tragedy really, this story of, of 34, which does, yeah, as you said, Jack, points us forward to Jesus. Um, now, a heap of questions that we've got today. So let's let's dive in and uh, see how we go. Uh, just a couple of quick kind of orientation questions. Uh, Shechem is the name of this city uh, in, in which the action kind of happens. Um, is, is there any significance to, to that name? And to, there's a character called Shechem uh, already in Genesis. Uh, you know, anything of significance to note there, Jack? Yeah, I think I think Kara, you helped me point it out before. Um, it, you know, the explanation is probably that Shechem's dad, you know, names him after the town. That kind of makes sense. You know, the same way, you know, I know a few women who are called Adelaide. We have a city named that, and like that's not a, a weird thing in itself. I think there probably is something going on in the way that the city is characterized compared to Shechem. So Shechem is the you know the principal perpetrator in this chapter. He is the one who violates Dinah, and then you see over the the course of the chapter how Shechem persuades the rest of the town look you know let's agree to their scheme you know they decide to get circumcised so they can intermarry with Jacob's people like the rest of Shechem seems to kind of participate and agree with Shechem's plan they're kind of bound up with him in in his wickedness I think that's part of the the characterization effect of having the name shared like that okay very good. Um, now, Cara, a couple of questions about Dinah herself. Now, verse one, we're told that she's she's one of Leah's um, daughters. We know a bit about this, the backstory of, of uh, Leah and Rachel and the favoritism that's there. Um, do, you, do you think that if someone's asking, if, if she had been Rachel's daughter, would Jacob have responded differently? Good question. Hard to answer because, uh, you know, the narrator and, and Genesis doesn't comment on it. I guess um, what we do see throughout Genesis, don't we, is Jacob's general favouritism. I mean, we see that later on with his son Joseph, um, mm. the way he loves Joseph more than the other brothers. Um, and, again, I think I said in our interview on Sunday, it, again, just makes me think Jacob is not a, a character I or a person I particularly warm to. 
um, because he does do all these kind of favoritism things and it's been bubbling away, hasn't it, in Genesis, that favoritism theme. So I think um, it's we can't answer the question because we don't have that answer directly for us, but there is something in there, I wonder, about mm. that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you do see the, the fact that it's Simeon and Levi who are the the kind of responders in this passage. Simeon and Levi are also Leah's sons out of Jacob's family. You see the little kind of mini family just of Leah's children who are on display here. So it's like there are some people out there who want to read into this, are, you know, Simeon and Levi are angry at their dad because he doesn't love Leah and therefore doesn't love them. So they're kind of acting out almost in response to the lack of um, love that Jacob has shown to Leah. And... I mean, in the context of the whole story, maybe there's a bit of that going on, but like you said, Cara, like the, the passage doesn't really make it explicit. So there may be hints of it there, but it is hard to say anything for sure, I think. Yeah, but but it is certainly a theme that's going to going to come out um, and, and really bubble up to the surface in in our next section of Genesis, which we'll we'll do later on um, once we get to the Joseph story. That that really comes to the front, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Okay. Um, also, we, we read in verse one, Kara, um, that Dinah was going out to see the women of the land. That's kind of the framing that we get about uh, before the incident where, where she's attacked. Um, is there any anything significant about that phrase? Was she doing something wrong? Yeah. Is this her fault? You know, has she put herself in a really bad situation? And I don't think, again, the passage doesn't really tell us that. But I, I imagine what has happened is that they've been living there for a while. Dinah's kind of grown up. She's maybe in her mid-teens perhaps. Um, and it turns out she's made friends with the, the girls, the neighbourhood, the women from the next-door neighbourhood. Uh, and so she's perhaps just visiting them as women would tend to do. Um, I'm not sure that we can read in any blame of her for that. Um, it might be that there's something going on that Jacob hasn't, there's no other women particularly for her to associate within her own family or Jacob hasn't got control of his family. I'm not really sure about that. Again, that's just importing something into the text. But I'm not sure that she's doing anything specifically wrong. Um, it seems that naturally friendships might have just risen up mm. by virtue of being close to each other. Mm. Yeah, and I guess there's an. I mean, there there is a, a sense in which we, we must be very careful. I think often, even when we hear kind of modern reports of, of sexual violence and thinking, well, she was in the wrong place, she shouldn't have yes. been there. It's it's never at that sense, um, yeah, a victim's fault to, to be um, violated in that sense, is it? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, now we're told once uh, once the event happens that uh, it's an outrageous thing to happen in Israel in verse seven. Um, and someone's helpfully kind of questioning, doesn't Israel not exist yet? It's not quite a nation state in the, in the sense that it will become later on down the track. Uh, so how is it an outrageous thing in Israel? Yeah, really great pickup. I think in the first instance, Israel here is Jacob's name. You might have remembered a couple of weeks ago, we saw how, you know, Jacob wrestles with God. And out of that incident in chapter 32, Jacob walks away with this new name. His name is now Israel, the one who struggles with God. So I think in, in its you know primary context here, verse 7 is saying this was an outrageous thing in, in Jacob. So what does that mean? I think there's two main possibilities. The first is you could be starting to see Jacob as a, a people kind of be identified by his name. So, so Israel, in inverted commas at this point, is just Jacob and his sons and Dinah. So even in, in, within their little clan, this was an outrageous thing to be done among this people. 
Another possibility is it's a translation question. So that phrase in Israel, uh, the phrase in Hebrew could just as uh, easily mean against Israel. So this was an outrageous thing done against Jacob. Uh, and that might be focusing not even particularly on the tribe as a whole, but particularly on Jacob. For, for Shechem to do this thing is not just a, a violation of Dinah. It's also an offense against Jacob as Dinah's father. Mm. So at that point, the boys are kind of, they're, they're both like having a go at Shechem, but also at Jacob. Like this was an outrageous thing against Jacob, but Jacob hasn't responded to the offense. You know, he's kind of been silent. I think that's more likely the way that I would take it. Okay. All that said, uh, for later Israelites reading this, of course, they couldn't help but hear the echo of, you know, this, this crime was an outrageous thing among the people who Israel would go on to beat, the nation that would come out of that. So yeah, a few things going on there, but I think that's that's how I would take yeah, that's, it. That's really helpful. Thanks, Jack. Um, okay, uh, now uh, verses fifteen to seventeen, um, the, the the retribution that comes upon the Shechemites is, is that uh, Jacob's sons decide that they're going to use circumcision uh, to sort of uh, deceive and and incapacitate the Shechemites uh, so that they can roll in and attack. What what are we to make of the fact that they use the covenant sign of circumcision in their deception? What, what's is, is there significance to that, Jack? I think so, yeah. So circumcision first appears in Genesis 17. That's when God is ratifying this covenant with Abraham. And circumcision is the sign that Abraham is given for not just him, but all his male descendants to mark them out as the people of God in this mm-hmm. special relationship with the creator of the universe. Like circumcision to them is this, this really significant thing. And maybe you could argue that the boys are kind of expressing that in saying, oh, we couldn't give our sister to a man who's not circumcised. That would be a disgrace because circumcision is such a big deal. Mm. That's what they say. But we have to remember we've already been primed by the narrative to, to see what they're doing is wrong because back in verse 13, it says, because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully. Mm. as they spoke to Shechem. Mm. And that deceit word, that's that's one of those key words that runs through this whole section of Genesis, you know, when Jacob deceived mm-hmm. Isaac and Esau, when Laban deceived Jacob, like we're, we're, we're expecting that to be a bad thing here. Yeah. So the fact that these boys would take the precious covenant sign of circumcision and use that as their, their stick with which to beat the Shechemites effectively, and all of this in a passage where God is not even mentioned, I mm. think we're meant to see this as, as Simeon and Levi and their brothers really kind of taking this thing, this good thing is God given and abusing it for their own vengeful ends. I think that that's a, it's something almost sacrilegious about what they're doing at this point. Mm. It, it sounds, doesn't it, in verse 15, Jack, I think quite honourable, you know, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. That is, you and and Dinah have kind of entered into this union, so let's combine the the peoples, if you like, and let's all be one happy family. But as you say, I think that deceit word shows that they are, in fact, using that, as you say, that precious sign for their own purposes, really. They're taking it actually out of God, from God and using it in their own vengeful purposes. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of in chapter 27 when Jacob is in the middle of deceiving Isaac and Isaac says, oh, you know, how did you come back so quickly and, and get me the meal already? And Jacob says, oh, you know, the Lord gave me success. Yes. Like the fact that Jacob at that point invokes God's name yes. to kind of sanctify his, his, the fact that he's lying to his dad in this awful way, like it, it, it magnifies the sin. It makes it, it's not just like, oh, I did this bad thing. Sorry, God. It's like, no, it's like almost like spitting in God's face at this point, like willfully, knowingly doing this thing that God would not approve of. Yeah. Mm. 
which yeah. kind of makes God's absence in this chapter even more stark at one level, doesn't it? In that the, the, the one little point that he possibly kind of pops in with his sign of circumcision is actually used by humans for terrible deceit and death and destruction. It's, it's, there's, it's tragic. Mm. Indeed. Absolutely. All right. Uh, we'll push on. A couple of questions for you here, Kara. Um, mm-hmm. Verse 29, we read that after the the, uh, d- the death of the Shechemite men, um, they take the women as, as captives. They take some plunder from the city. Um, yeah. what, what are we to make of all of that? And uh, what, what happens to these women taken as, as plunder? Yeah. It's interesting. Again, this is um, a question that we just don't have the answer to. There are so many threads in this passage, aren't there, that, you know, you could go down that road and try and find out what happened to these people, go down this road, what happened to these people. We're just simply not told. But I think what we are given in kind of verses 27 to 29 is this sense of complete victory by Shechem, um, by um, Simeon and Levi, just overall victory. Even they've got everything, haven't they? They've got the herds, the donkeys, they've got... Um, all their wealth, the women and children, everything in the houses, it's total ransacking. But actually what we find out is it's a completely empty and hollow victory. So we're not told what happens with the women. We're not told what, you know, where the, where, what they do with all the wealth. We're not given that information. But I think it just gives us this actually quite horrible view of this plunt, this victory that they think they've won, mm. which is actually really just awful. Mm. Yeah, Jack, yeah. Anything, yeah, you happy with that? Okay. Um, uh, what about Dinah herself after this char- uh, chapter, Cara? Yeah. Poor old Dinah. Um, again, we're not really given, we're only given one more reference to her. Jack helpfully pointed it out earlier to me. Um, one more reference to her in Genesis 46, verse 15, where we're um, being told of the the sons of, of Jacob and um and we're told in verse 15, the sons of Leah bore to Jacob and besides his, these are the names of them, besides his daughter Dinah. And that's all we're given. We're not even, we don't have a sense that she's actually married to Shechem, that she's in his household. Seems to be she's still in Jacob's household. Has she actually ever recovered from this um, this thing that was done to her, this rape? Has she ever borne any children? It doesn't seem that she has. Mm. Um it's there's a real bleak. There's just nothing we're given that says that she's had uh, a full life in the sense of an Israel life. So we don't have much. That's all we have, but it doesn't bode well. I don't think for her. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And in terms of the the expectation of what what would happen in those kind of cultures to yeah. someone who went through what Dinah went through, yes. the picture you get in the the Israelite law is that, you know, when a woman is raped like this, it's really incumbent on the man to, to marry her. And I mean, Cara and I, we talked about this more in our extended interview. So do have a look at that if you if you haven't yet and want to find out more about that. Mm. But all of that is to, you know, safeguard the honour of this woman who, who has been violated, like her honour has been stripped to shreds. But the only kind of possible way to retrieve that in any way is if she would marry him. Because in that kind of culture, there's no real other possibility that Dinah would be married to another man um it's just it wouldn't have been the done thing you see echoes of, of that in in 2 samuel 13 another awful passage yes. where david's son amnon rapes his sister tamar and there you get a much bigger picture of what happens to tamar afterwards to start is when when amnon tries to send her away because he's, he's now kind of repulsed by her 
Um, Tamar says, no, um, 2 Samuel 13, verse 16. Sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. You know, as hard as it is for us to hear, the, the worst thing at that point would be for her to be repudiated and, and not allowed to marry him. And you find out at the end, verse 20, after all this, Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. So yeah. she goes to live with another brother. She's she's desolate. That's all we hear of it. The impression is that her life is never the same after this and she, she never really recovers. So Genesis doesn't say that about Dinah, but if I had to say anything and speculate, I would say we imagine something pretty similar. And that's mm. just part of the awful consequences of the sin we see here, that it's not something that goes away. It's not like you can just murder a whole city and wipe out the offense. Like sin doesn't get rubbed out like that. It has consequences that we live with and that are awful and ultimately just keep driving us to the gospel and some sort of hope beyond this life, beyond the the effects of sin in this world. Mm. And sorry, I just want to clarify. I did say that, you know, she's not married to Shechem. Of course she's not because Shechem was killed. Um, So, yes. you know, that's <laughs> yes. yeah, that, that, It's a difficult, but, um, difficult marriage there. Um, yeah. yeah. But she's not welcome, like she's not taken into, well, there was no household for her to be taken into really, yeah. was it? Yeah. They just own everything. So that's the consequence. That would have been the, giving her back her honour, mm. but actually her brothers took that away from her mm. by killing everybody. Mm. And so she was then forced probably, unable to marry another because she'd been defiled mm. um, and then forced to be in her father's household. So her brothers actually took away the opportunity she had to be honoured, mm. um, as Jack was just explaining, through that system, yeah. which is fascinating, really. Yeah, what a mess. Mm. Um, okay, a couple of questions to, to sort of uh, uh, wrap us up. Um, Kara, you've done a lot of work in for the diocese on, on domestic violence, sexual violence, this kind of yeah, stuff. Right. Um, someone's texted in, what, what about males affected by this kind of violence? We, you, we've helpfully, and you guys, particularly in your extended interview, talking through um, women and, and domestic violence, and statistically that's um, where the issues are. But what, what about men and sexual violence? Have you got any thoughts to share for, for us? Yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, men are victims of sexual domestic violence, um, often uh, the domestic violence that they'll experience isn't so much physical or sexual violence, but it's um, emotional, spiritual violence that occurs uh, to them. And, yes, they are victims. Of course, statistically, uh, men are much less likely to be victims, mm. but they still are. And that's why when we did our work in the diocesan um, task force on domestic violence, the, the uh, resource that we produced is deliberately not tailored uh, or speaking to men or women, but to both. We mm. keep kept the male-female language out of that because we recognise in our own church communities, of course, we're made up of men and women and we want men to have the opportunity to speak up and know how to get the help that they need uh, if they are in a situation of domestic violence. So that was really important to us. Mm. And, again, for men, if you are experiencing it, I, for men, I think while there's shame for women, uh, for men, I understand that the... the speaking out about any kind of violence, emotional violence that your wife is perpetrating against you, your partners, is deeply shameful um, and so very difficult for men to speak up. But they must and find that friend, the minister, somebody who, to talk to and share their story with. Mm. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Um, now... The two sort of extremes that that you uh, pointed out on on Sunday, Jack, were, were violence and silence. Now, uh, helpfully, you pointed out they're not the way to, to sort of respond to injustice. 
So, but what is the godly response? Um, there's so many issues, and someone's texted in this. Uh, what, what's, what's our responsibility to, to respond when it comes to things like Black Lives Matters, uh, racism, domestic violence, uh, cries of the First Nations, refugees, human trafficking? There's just there's so many issues that are live right now. Um, so, so we're not to respond violently. We're not, not to be silent. What, what are we to do? Yeah, a really important question. And if I had another kind of 15 minutes to preach, um, they're the kinds of things we would have gone on to talk about. Because that's right. I mean, you could say, well, the response is there's no adequate human response. So let's just sit here and, and wait. You know, one day Jesus will come back and bring perfect justice in all its fullness. And that's our only hope. So now we just kind of grin and bear it. I mean, in part, there is part of that that I do want to keep affirming. Like, yes, uh, we will never have adequate human responses to injustice. So the only time that we will see that full and perfect justice is when Jesus will return. So we are waiting and praying, come Lord Jesus, for justice to be done in its entirety. But that doesn't mean that there's no scope for earthly justice, you know, in our temporal experience of life now. I mean, throughout Christian history, I mean, that's been a, a huge issue. You could look at mm. someone like William Wilberforce in the, the early 19th century in the, the throes of, you know, slavery and the, the height of the human abuses happening through that. He was an evangelical Christian who was a member of parliament in Britain who was standing up and engaging in that political process to bring an end to what he saw as this evil, godless institution. So part of our Christian heritage is that kind of participation, that seeking to bring just earthly justice, even within the structures we have now. And I think that's part of what you see in the scriptures as well. So a passage like Romans 12 and 13 is really important for us thinking about this. There's lots packed in here and we can't go into it all now, but a couple of quick things. The first is when we are ourselves uh, wronged, the response we're called to is, is one of gracious forgiveness and waiting. So Romans 12 verse 19 says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. When we are wronged, there is this, um, this stance of, you know, non-violence. Non like, you know, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. When we are wronged, our role is to entrust it to God and say, one day God will bring vengeance. And I'm happy to wait for that. There's a difference when we see others wronged, I think. Part of our duty of love is to care for those who are vulnerable, who are oppressed, mm -hmm. to do whatever we can to, to bring justice, recognising that it's not going to be perfect. But, you know, for us in our age, we have plenty of avenues available to us. Like the fact that we live in liberal democracies where we actually have a voice and have a vote and have a, a process which to engage in means that I think it is incumbent on us to take our responsibility seriously to be a part of that. Is government going to be perfect in this life? Like, by no means. And when Paul says, you know, submit to the governing authorities in Romans 13, verse 1, mm. the authorities he was talking about was the, the Roman imperial uh, government, the, you know, Caesar, the, the one who, under Nero's reign, rounded up Christians and burned them. That's the, the person who uh, Paul was telling people to submit to. Uh, that doesn't mean that government has no role at all. Government is still established by God. It bears the sword to bring some... Uh, some sense of God's justice to wrong, even in this life. So even if our system isn't perfect, I think we are called to uphold what is good in it, to see it as God-given, to see it as the best instrument we have in some ways at the moment to bring some form of earthly justice to the wrongs that uh, we see. Yeah, Cara, what would you want to add? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think sometimes that is a much less attractive um, way forward because it's long and slow than the get out, march on a Sunday, have your, you know, say your piece and then and go home. And that's what 
I think as a Christian person I've been wrestling with is, you know, do I, do I go out on a march on a Sunday and, um, or any day and, you know, make my voice heard, but then what do I do? Or do I just come home and then turn on Netflix? Or is there a better, longer um, way of participating that's not as, as attractive, it's not as exciting, but, you know, writing to my, my members of parliament, my local members of parliament about particular issues. So for me, my local member happens to be Scott Morrison. Um, and so I've written to him on a number of occasions about domestic violence when the government was um, looking at funding for domestic violence issues. I've written to him about um, some other you know, national kind of issues, he'll read it. I'm one voice, but if I continue, you know, I can ring up and make an appointment with my local member, maybe not Scott Morrison, but my my um, New South Wales local member. I know people who have done that. It doesn't look as exciting. It's not as, you know, flashy, but it actually, you know, look at organisations that are caring for the vulnerable, investigate them, investigate what they stand for, give money to them, you know, use your own resources to support those kind of organisations. Um, that's a longer, more hidden way of going about it, but it's the avenues that are open to us and we shouldn't take those for granted. We should make use of those, I think. And I think that's important because it's the, um, it, it's the harder option and for the, for the Christian, that's, uh, that, that's yeah. where we need to head. All right. Well, I think, folks, uh, that'll that'll do us for today. And uh, Cara, we want to say a huge thank you for all your time uh, that you've given to us and your wisdom. Great. I've really, really loved it. Just wrestling with God's word with you and these really big issues that come out of it. They've been great questions. So thank you for the opportunity. Nice. Well, we'll have you back anytime. Uh, so see you next week. No, and, <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, Jack, also for your work in, in Genesis. And that sort of brings us to, to almost the end of our Genesis. We've got one more week to go, which is happening this Sunday. So tune in for that on Sunday on YouTube. We will see you there. And uh, God bless. We'll see you shortly. Thanks, guys. See you later. Bye.